Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Welcome to another edition of On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and bringing in a professional colleague and friend that I've enjoyed getting to know, and especially his thought leadership in the space, not just in his state of Georgia and Pike County schools, but but his perspective across the nation. I'd like to introduce Dr. Michael Duncan. He is a superintendent and has been at Pike County since June of 2005. That That's quite a period of time there, Mike. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in your history, but he's won a number of awards to include state superintendent of the, of the year. So he's He's well-versed in a number of different areas within and throughout education, and uh, it's, a pl- it's a pleasure to have you on today, Mike. Thanks, Rod. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Well, well Mike, we, we had a chance uh, off-air to just talk about some topics that are obviously sort of bouncing around the education uh, ether in that regard, but we are in the spring now. Uh, it some, doesn't feel like it in some parts of the country <laughs> with some cold snaps coming through, but you know, this is when we start to think about summer, we start to think about the next school year and all the different activities to to be able to wrap up. Help me understand how communication changes from a leadership perspective and position after we've turned the new year, sort of the calendar when it comes to supporting educators, supporting division heads and the things that are coming up when it comes to assessments. It just seems to be so much that I think we as citizens take for granted that goes on behind the scenes for a district. Talk about this time of year and the unique position it puts you in when it comes to communicating with your staff and teachers across a district. Oh, great question, Rod. Uh, you know, what's interesting, a lot of people don't really uh, understand how the ebb and flow of a school year, especially from the senior leadership perspective. Uh, you, we start in November and December of doing student projections for the, for the next year. And so we start in January with staffing allotments and tightening up the strategic plan, working on budget. Uh, so this time of year, you know, use an old Southern saying, you know, the haze in the barn. Uh, so <laughs> uh, we try to give our teachers a, a lot of space as we are staring right down the barrel of our state standardized assessment. Uh, but in our district, uh, we, we don't place a tremendous amount of emphasis on our state standardized assessment. Uh, we, we have uh, a whole variety of performance-based assessments Um, I use the word assessments, but we just call them performance-based learning activities uh, that students do uh, at the end of the year uh, after the state standardized tests that show us what they can do with what they know, not just necessarily what they know. And so for us, this time of year, that's the most important thing. So our cornerstone tasks that we have at the end of each year and our capstone experiences that we have in our transitional grades, uh, you know, this, this is about, this is a space where uh, we are truly given teacher space uh, to be able to operate and to work with students on these learning performances that will exhibit later on in the spring before the summer. Uh, so from a senior leadership perspective, we're very much uh, centered right now on professional development uh, for the summer and professional development for early fall, uh, because in the rhythm of a school year, um, whatever you have not accomplished insofar as professional development by the 1st of October, um, you're probably not going to get accomplished. So you really have from June to about the first week in October uh, to really get professional learning, uh, completed implementation, pilot strategies working out. So a lot of this is giving teachers that space, but also uh, letting them uh, help us understand their needs for the fall and the summer and getting that professional development plan. Mike, let's talk a little bit about uh, that dirty word being COVID and just sort of where we are with regards to sort of balancing the tires in the car, right? Are we aligned with sort of whatever this new normal is, the way in which that impacts professional development, 
the needs of educators throughout your district and what you're hearing, maybe state and, na and na nationwide. Uh, have we reached a point where we can breathe a little bit, at least in our understanding of how to respond in the event of a spike and how that may or may not impact our day-to-day -to, -day to include those items that help to support the ongoing development of educators as they build their sort of repertoire in how to address student needs in these sort of sort of crazy times, right? We just never expected. Yeah, I think we've, we've flexed that muscle a lot over the last couple of years. So, you know, those communities that uh, had deep internet penetrations that were able to move back and forth from asynchronous uh, learning, moving back into the school and be able to uh, navigate that ebb and flow. I think many districts and my colleagues, especially the ones I talked to around Georgia, uh, they have very well articulated plans. They know how to make that move in and out. Um, you know, but what I'm honestly hearing from teachers from all around the state and principals all around the state is um, they're just kind of over it and they need kids in their building. They need kids in their classrooms. And, um, you know, I, I believe if we ever had transition to this place again, um, it, it would be much easier. You know, but I, I think one of the stories that that really hasn't been told in a lot of ways is that there is a lot of small rural communities throughout this nation uh, that did not have the technology, did not have the platforms, did not have the ability uh, to continue school in a really meaningful way uh, once there was shutdowns that were either caused by different standards that the states may have set or different protocols. Uh, you know, for us, uh, we, we were one of those districts that lacked uh, the necessary technology. And, and so we were, we, we were forced to have mitigation efforts was inside the school, but then to continue to go forward with our instructional design. And, and in a year where everyone is talking about spending summer time to catch up and get kids caught up, um, last year, we actually saw the largest literacy gains in the history of our district last year. The largest? The largest literacy gains in the history of our district. And so um, there was a, there's a lot of issues around that. Of course, uh, we, we were the beneficiary of a, of a very large state literacy grant, um, but we did not stop with the implementation of the strategies within the grant. So uh, we went to school every single day. Uh, we actually uh, had all of our, had, had a little, uh, we, we made these little pins at the end of the year, Rod, it was kind of cute for, for all of our staff. Uh, that was just a, a flexed muscle that had the number of days we went. This year, everybody <laughs> to say. Uh, we went to school every day, and uh, we're, we're very proud that we were able to keep our kids in school every day. And our community was really supportive of keeping our kids in school every day. So we, we actually saw some instructional gains last year uh, as we worked to continue to strengthen our instructional framework around deeper learning. So, uh, you know, I, but, but I believe in talking to my colleagues from around the state um, that they're, they're well positioned to move forward. But once again, there is a huge technology gap. Uh, and, and if you really begin to think about the haves and the have nots and the resources that kids have, uh, kids in small rural communities, I, I think, definitely came out of this uh, much, much further behind than, than other students. And so I, I'm not I'm not gathering from your voice and sort of tenor that we've made any advancements in that area that are substantial or meaningful. Well, you know, most states, at least here in Georgia, there, there's not a mechanism in which to fund technology. And so most of technology infrastructure in the state of Georgia is done through a special purpose local action sales tax. But if you're in a small rural community where all the factories and businesses have, have moved on, uh, there's not there's not a lot of money, uh, you know, plus just getting high speed Internet in small rural communities. It's just not advantageous to the big providers. And so, you know, our, our governor has done a great job of, of, of trying to get us resources and, and, and having rural broadband being a, being a top priority for his administration. So we're, we're hopeful for the future, Rod. 
but if, if there was really a, a disparity around public education, it, it definitely is around high-speed internet. It, I'm glad that you brought this uh, up in this discussion because it does, it, it feels like there are far-reaching implications to what you're talking about, uh, talking about even beyond just sort of this point in time around COVID and a pandemic, because we're talking about a global marketplace and economic development where these young people are going to have the expectations to enter jobs that are utilizing these technologies that you're talking about. And so it makes you wonder as a parent, if I were a parent of a student, of a child in a rural district, not only do they have access to what they need right now, but are they being set up to understand and digest what is going to be expected of them in the future? Is that too hyperbolic or am I, am I sort of touching on the sensitivity of this and why we should be bringing this story for, uh, to the forefront? Yeah, no, no, Rod, I, I, I think you nailed it exactly. And, and what we're seeing in, in small rural communities, I believe all around the nation is you're seeing a migration to suburban urban areas. And, and that is because internet is now the, the, the most important utility that we can have. And so for rural communities to stay vibrant, not having that one utility, not having high-speed internet is going to force these young people to move on. I, I read a study just recently that was talking um, that by the year 2030, uh, upwards to 50 to 80% of the American workforce will be gig workers. Uh, well, will those gig workers work through digital platforms? Well, if you, if you don't have reliable high-speed internet, you have to move somewhere that has reliable high-speed internet. So we, we are seeing here in Georgia a, a great migration from the rural southwest of our state to Atlanta. And so the the large urban areas are growing. It's pushing infrastructure uh, just to, I, I live about 30 minutes from downtown Atlanta. I typically plan 90 minutes to get to downtown. So on a, on a traffic-free day, I get there in 30 minutes, but I have to plan on an hour and a half. So it, there really are great implications to what's happening as we don't provide rural broadband there is a great migration it's and, and it is beginning to take a toll on urban infrastructure uh, just just the housing market in atlanta uh, my oldest son lives in atlanta uh, and, and it, it, it's hard to find somewhere to live it's hard to get around it's hard to find transportation um, it's just a real challenge and so we don't often think about just the implications of that so we talk about the implications of students and there's long-term sort of um their aspirations um, and, and, and potential, right? The opportunities that we hope that they will be able to, to get in front of. One area that I don't think we talk a lot about, and I think some of it is just we're concerned that there's this sort of this tension around it. Um, and that if we don't think about it, it'll go away, is just how we are or we are not supporting teachers so that they will not only stay on board, but be happy in their positions. And this is more of a national perspective, but we see headlines around the big quit and these sorts of things where teachers are starting to reevaluate their own professional path. And I'm wondering how what you're, we're talking about with technology and just sort of different communities and how they're now, I guess, you know, uh, interacting with their citizens and, and in trying to provide the best opportunities possible, how all of those elements are impacting a workforce that my goodness, we need, <laughs> we need more rather than less. And we, you know, it's like your pilot, you want them feeling really good on the day you're taking off. Yes, um, right. I selfishly want my teachers feeling really good about what they're doing. And, and I just wonder how all of these different variables are, are impacting them. And if you've got any thoughts, given your position uh, as a superintendent. Well, Rod, if you think about it, uh, the, the people entering the teaching profession right now, th this is the first generation of young people that are now entering the workforce that has been a part of the hyper accountability movement since they entered kindergarten. 
And so when we think about historically the type of people that want to become educators, uh, these are typically very caring, very nurturing, very creative people. Um, but now we have this nationally and, and across every state, we have this hyper accountability movement. It, it, it's all about high stakes standardized testing. And, and I believe, and I have said this many times, I, I don't believe teachers get up in the morning, brush their teeth, look in the mirror and say, I can't wait to get to school today to move that class one more percentile point on that standardized test. And, and so we've, we've created this working environment that I, I don't believe uh, is very purposeful and very fulfilling, especially for a young generation uh, that seems to be more purpose-driven than any generation that we've seen. And so I believe that how we redefine teaching and learning is probably the most important conversation we need to have. You know, we're asking ourselves, why are folks not getting into the profession? Well, when you think that their only goal is to be for their success is being scored on how students score on a standardized assessment, which which has very little validity in how that child will perform in life or what level of success they may or may not have in life. Um, but then the environment of working toward this standardized approach where they don't have very much creativity, you know, I, I believe we're having the wrong conversation. Uh, the conversation is why are folks not coming into the profession? Um, the question should be, um, why would they? You know, why would they? And so we're getting in uh, to something that is not very purpose driven, you know, and, and, and let's let's you know, be very candid. You know, the level of student behavior that teachers have to deal with on a daily basis, the types of behaviors that they're dealing with uh, has become more extreme. Um, they are valued in our community less, I believe, than they ever have been. So we're asking people to enter a profession with a college degree where they're underpaid. They're less appreciated. By and large, parents give them less support and they have higher stakes on performance that allow them no creativity. So why, why would young people want to enter this profession? And so we have to begin to think about how we redefine teaching and learning, not only in a way that benefits children, but in a way that benefits the adults as well. In Pike County, um, we're working hard to redefine what teaching means. And so not as teacher, as disseminator of knowledge, someone who's just providing content, giving kids things that they should know, but now thinking of teachers in three different ways, teacher as designer, teacher as guide, and teacher as curator, uh, teachers as a designer of concept-based learning activities, a guide to self-directed learning, and then a curator of authentic performances. And so we're, we're trying in Pike County to reimagine the role of the teacher and to co-construct um, what, what those roles are and provide professional development to meet those roles. Because I believe that's why young people want to become teachers, uh, because they, they want to inspire young people to learn. Um, but this is that first generation that has been of standardized, high-stakes assessment since day one. You know, one thing that I've heard floated around to this point in discussion around teachers and the profession of teaching that I do find incredibly interesting when we actually step back. You know, we live in a world now where young people are expecting to enter into careers where they have great flexibility. They might sort of ping around a sector and come back and go to another area. But 
that's it's expected, it's applauded, it's embraced. And yet the proposition for a prospective teacher is sign this piece of paper for like the next 30 years, or at least that's the thought. In essence, you're sort of entering into this elevator that you're going to be on for 30 years. And I'm just wondering if if we are at a time where there's an opportunity to rethink this because, you know, one, I don't think the industry does a great job of, of describing or narrating all the different ways in which you can impact education as a teacher, as an innovator, as a leader, right? All these sorts of things, these roles, it's sort of, you're either a building level or a superintendent kind of a thing. You're in, you're in administration or you're in the classroom. And that to me is, doesn't sort of complete the whole picture and or integrate in a world where if a young person wants to be in medicine, there are a million different ways that they can do it and come back. We see it in sports business. We, I mean, every sector, but for whatever reason, we don't hear. Is that, do you think there's an opportunity to rethink sort of the, the on-ramp, the off-ramp, and sort of keeping them in, in the system in different ways where they are continuously challenged and they see opportunity? Well, Rod, I think that's a great point. And, and we've had a lot of conversations about it, especially in our state, as, as we, much like many of the states around the country, have a teacher shortage. One, one, of, the, one of the recommendations that, that I gave our task force in Georgia that, that's looking at teacher recruitment and retention is uh, this generation of young people, we must create and articulate off-ramps. Because asking a 22-year-old with a little college debt to enter into a 30-year engagement um, that that's a little intimidating. And, and, and I think for the first time I have seen career educators toward the end of their career, actively counseling their own children and other family members out of the profession. And I have, I have never witnessed that in my life. And, you know, a lot of people want to say this is COVID related, but it's not COVID related. I, I started seeing this happen about seven or eight years ago. And, 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 you know, when you have teachers that are counseling family members out of the profession, then there are really some structural issues that, that we need to address. And, and I know that there are people out there that would want to say, you know, technology is going to be the answer. You know, why do I need, why do I need five math teachers when I have one really amazing math teacher that can teach all these students online? Um, I, you know, I think there certainly is a place for that. And, and I think we certainly should try to leverage that. Uh, but for us and our philosophy, we're, we're a social constructivist theory district. So we believe that that learning is social. And, and so we create learning opportunities in which students are, uh, they are developing deep understandings uh, together through social interactions and collaboration. And, and, and I believe that, that, that is just one example of, of redefining the way teachers interact with students that can be more interesting for young people to want to get in the profession. Uh, but, but I just believe that young people are not going to commit to 30 years. And, and if we can find very reasonable off ramps for them to say, hey, come and give us five or six years, you know, and so creating, you know, but, but it's the state pension systems that often create those difficulties, you know, because they're investment periods, right? But, it, but if you know you're coming in and you know you're not going to be a lifer, uh, but it, in this season of your life, this is a great place for you to be, uh, then, then how do we incentivize that, um, but then create a very reasonable off-ramp for you so you can move on? I read an article just the other day. My school board chair actually sent it to me. He's a, an HR executive. And uh, it was an article about how private businesses are hiring all these teachers that are quitting because these teachers have incredible skill sets. 
And they do. Their communication skills are outstanding. Their organizational skills are amazing. Their social intelligence is fantastic. You know, so these are these are people, especially in this job market, that can move out of education and add great value in the corporate world. And so I think there's there's a real challenge here. Let's let's pivot to to your office uh, in the broader sense, meaning the superintendency. Is it fair to to assume, and it's it's not just the superintendency, but it's any position I think really in any sector. But we'll we'll take it um, because that's the role that you play. The, sort of the the requisite skill set that we assume is needed for someone to be a superintendent. How has that changed? To your point, even prior to COVID, I mean, are we? And how are we helping to support the next generation of superintendent with skill sets that are up to date, current, that sort of meet the day to day challenges and needs that have evolved over time and some, I think, faster than others? Are we preparing that next set of superintendents to be prepared for a world that they're walking into that feels a lot, feels much more complex maybe than when you started? I, yeah, I, you know, my feeling is absolutely not. It, um, you know, it, it is very much on the job training. Um, you know, funny, funny story I tell, uh, I, I was 32 years, 32 years old when I uh, became superintendent and my wife and I were leaving the small community um, after the board had approved me. And so we're, we're pulling out onto the courthouse where it's one of those quintessential idyllic little Southern towns. And so we're turned by the courthouse and uh, my wife says, uh, and I start giggling and uh, she says, what are you giggling about? And I said, I have no idea what I'm doing. And she said, well, you better figure it out and you better figure it out in a hurry. And, and there really aren't great support systems, Rod. There, there really aren't great support systems uh, to, to help onboard superintendents. Um, I, I think our local associations uh, try the very best, but the job has changed. When I became superintendent uh, 17 years ago, it was very much about operational things, you know, have a good budget, you know, make sure the buildings are renovated, make sure they're clean, um, make sure the teachers are happy, hire highly qualified people, let those teachers go in the room, leave them alone, and, and everything's going to work out. Um, but I have seen in my career, and, and it's forced me to pivot in a very dramatic way of understanding that the core business that I'm in is teaching and learning. And I must be the lead learner in my learning organization. And so I must be the most curious person in the room. Uh, I, I, I believe this job has positioned itself to where if you're not someone that enjoys the teaching and learning aspect, but you really enjoy the operational aspect, it, it's going to be a hard road for you. Because I believe at this point more than ever, especially as we are looking at 20 years of high stakes testing in the background and looking forward to the future, which I think is going to be much more innovative and much more exciting as there are so many great examples of really fantastic learning models that are taking place that the superintendents are going to have to be the chief innovators within their communities to reimagine public education for their, for their, their children. And, and they can't sit back um, and not lead that work. And so that, that's, that's a very unique challenge. So there, there are communication challenges with that. There are change management challenges with that. But it's also understanding the, the core theories and strategies of teaching and learning and, and how to create systems that allow every child every day to have access to deep, conceptual, rigorous learning. 
that results in authentic performances that the parents can see the results of learning. So the, the job has has really shifted dramatically. And and I'll be honest with you, for me, um, the the last five years for me and and what I've had to learn myself and grow uh, as an innovator and a change manager and a visionary um, has been the most exciting time of my career. I mean, it's an exciting time to be a school superintendent. It really is. It's an exciting time because I believe COVID has opened the door that we are all thinking about the future of education and that it can't look like it has looked for the last 60 years. And so I believe now more than ever, having bright thinkers come into the superintendency that want to roll their sleeves up and really work with teachers and, and be a part of teaching and learning, um, I, think it's, I think it's the most exciting time ever. And, and I think there is a generation of those operational CEOs um, that are uncomfortable in the space. And I think you're starting to see more of them um, retire and move out of the profession. Let's close with this. If, if I were to spend time and interview your wife and I said, how do you, how do you think Mike has changed since giggling on the, the court steps to today as a man? What has education done to him and his spirit? What, what do you think her response might be? Ooh, I, I, I would say, Rod, that she would say he is purpose-driven, that the journey to deeper learning through our portrait graduate work that our community has embraced. Um, wow, I'm kind of getting a little emotional, man. Great question. Um, you know, I, I just never thought I was going to have this career. You know, I, I really didn't think that I was going to be in a position to lead the way we think about public education and to be in a position to work with people that are so committed to doing what's right for kids, but challenging the status quo. And so it, it has been, it has been a great journey of, of purpose. And, uh, and honestly, it's, uh, it's given my life purpose. It's given me meaning, um, man, it, it, it's, it's been a great journey. And I know there are so many people out there that, our principals and their district leaders and are thinking, you know, I, I, I never want to be superintendent. You know, I would just tell them, you know, please don't think like that. You know, this, this is the best job I have ever had. And Rod, and I'm honest when I say this, there hasn't been one day that I get up in the morning and I'm not excited to go to work. Man, I just feel like luckiest guy in the world. This is when being just a podcast is, uh, it, it hurts the audience. So I apologize, audience, because if you could just see Mike's face, even as I was asking that question, um, you know, and I'll go on my own soapbox here, but <clears throat> in the hundreds of soups that I've interviewed, but, you know, uh, Mike is authentic. Um, and I think we need more Mike Duncan's, Dr. Mike Duncan's out there because it is a challenging time. We want to focus on the positives, but I think we also want to be real about education and the impacts that it can have, not just on our, our own, our own families, but uh, community wide. And these are community challenges and opportunities. And uh, Pike County is obviously the better for, for you and, and obviously the state of Georgia, but uh, you're a voice that needs national recognition. And I want to thank you for your time, your transparency, um, 
and for just inspiring me as a dad, most importantly. So I want to thank Dr. Michael Duncan, uh, superintendent of Pike County Schools. I encourage everybody to sync up with him. Uh, he is very gracious with his time, and I think you can all learn something from him. Once again, I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.